and a very good evening uh, to everyone here. Thank you so much for being here uh, this evening uh, for this Evensong service. Uh, can I invite you to turn with me, please, back to our Old Testament reading in Exodus. Uh, it's on page 70 to 71 of the Church Bibles, page 70 to 71. Uh, we're actually starting a little bit before that, Church, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, uh, to the end of chapter 18. So page 70 uh, from Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. And uh, once you've got that, uh, can I also ask you to open in your bulletin that you received as you came in, then the center pages, there is an outline uh, of today's sermon, uh, and uh, you have that in front of you, that will be helpful as well, uh, so you can see uh, where we're up to uh, in our sermon. All right, so uh, center pages of the bulletin, but most importantly, page 70, uh, Exodus chapter 17, beginning from verse 8. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. Thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word has been read and sung. Uh, and we pray now that as we come to consider this passage that, uh, uh, that your Spirit would be at work among us still. Uh, may he empower me to preach your Word rightly and in his strength. May he open each one of our eyes that we might see Jesus more clearly and that we might love him uh, and serve him. Uh, so work among us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is about 1450 BC. Until recently, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. But in fulfillment of God's promises to their ancestors, God has rescued them. He's brought them out. He's performed great and terrible, miraculous acts of judgment on the Egyptians. He's brought his people safely through the Red Sea to the wilderness. He is leading them to Sinai, and then he will take them to the promised land. And so now, they're in their now and not yet kind of period. That is, they're saved now. They're God's people now. God is looking after them now and leading them now, but they have not yet reached the promised land. They're still in the desert, not in the land flowing with milk and honey. And that is very much like the situation that we are in today, isn't it? We too are God's people journeying to our promised land. God has already saved us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is looking after us and leading us. But we haven't yet reached that promised land. We're still in the world of sin and pain, not in the new creation. And just as Israel had to actively face temptations and battles along the way, we too face all kinds of trials and difficulties in our journey. Last week we saw that when trials came, the Israelites kept on grumbling against God instead of crying out to Him. And that was a warning for us not to do the same in our journey. This week, and we're now at point one of our outline, we see them fight their first battle. And that's important for us because we know we face many battles in our journey as well. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't have to battle at all. In fact, God says, all you have to do is stand back, watch what God is going to do. Because he, the, the exodus was going to be a, a picture of redemption. And redemption is God's work. We are passive with that one. Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross in our place, who rose from the dead, we were saved simply by trusting in Him. 
We didn't contribute to our salvation. Like the Israelites, we were passive. But now that we've been saved, it is no longer time to stand back and watch. The Christian life is not passive. Now is the time for active service and active battles against the enemies of our souls. So to the Israelites. Now they're saved from Egypt. And then on their journey to the promised land, they will have to fight. And the first enemy they meet in verse 8 are the Amalek. The Amalek are actually distant relatives of the Israelites. They're descended from a grandson of Esau, the brother of Jacob, the ancestor of Israel. And these Amalek in verse 8 came and fought with Israel. Uh, we know from the book of Deuteronomy that what they did uh, it's pretty awful. They, they, they catch the laggards and the people who are falling behind at the back, uh, and they will attack them because they're weak uh, and, uh, and, and attack them. And so in verse 9, Moses tells Joshua to get ready to fight. And the next day, Joshua goes out to battle while Moses goes up the hill uh, together with Aaron and a guy called Hur. Uh, we see that in verse, uh, uh, in verse 10. Uh, and Moses goes up with the staff of God in his hand. And when he goes up on the hill, um, the interesting thing is this. Whenever Moses holds up his hand, Israel is winning. And when he lowers his hand, Amalek starts winning. And he can see this from the hill. But his, but his hands are getting tired. And so Aaron and her, they help. They get a stone and they make Moses a place to sit. And they each of them hold his hands up, right? One on this side and one on this side. And his hands are steady there until sunset when the battle is over. And Joshua trounces the people of Amalek with the sword. But this is not the end of God's dealings with the Amalek. God wants to put it on record what his plans are. He says in verse 14, Write this as a memorial, memorial in a book and recite in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It's not going to happen immediately, but it will happen. And the record will show that it's part of God's plan and purpose. Moses also builds an altar at that place and calls it, uh, in verse 15, The Lord Yahweh is my banner. Now, uh, the word banner there in the Hebrew is very much like the word for throne. Uh, for he says in verse 16, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh, upon the throne of the Lord. Probably refers to the fact that, that while his hands were raised, God gave victory to Israel. And so his hand figuratively touched the throne of God. Uh, and the sovereign God who rules all things uh, gave victory to the Israelites. Uh, but Moses prophesies that even though the battle was won, the war will continue. Verse 16, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation until in the end, many, many years to come, in 1 Samuel 15, he fulfills his promise and they are completely destroyed. So how does this apply to us? Who are we like in this story? Well, some people might say we're a bit like Moses and we need to touch the throne of God in prayer and, and wrest victory from our enemies. And, and while it's true, we, we really should keep on praying. And Moses is a good example for us, but I think when we automatically identify with the heroes in the Old Testament, we're developing a bit too grandiose a view of ourselves. We may be a bit like Moses, but actually we are much more like the Israelites. Remember, we are God's people 
whom he has rescued from slavery to sin, whom he's taking to the promised land of the new creation. But even as we journey there, we have enemies. Remember our New Testament reading from Ephesians 6 verse 12, which says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these enemies are nasty. They seek our spiritual ruin. They look out for the ones who are weak. The devil, the Bible says, is like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. And so God is their enemy too. And God has won a great victory over them at the cross. And he promises that in the end, they will be completely destroyed. It's not going to happen all at once. Struggle will continue. But God's judgment will come upon them. And the very same Bible that contains the, the prophecy of the destruction of Amalek and then later records the fulfillment of the prophecy also foretells theirs. And when the time comes, the record will show that it is in God's plan and purposes. But in the meantime, we face battle with these forces of evil. Ephesians 6 tells us that the weapons of our battle are the gospel and prayer. And we are to fight in the strength of the Lord. Like the Israelites who are fighting Amalek, our victory comes from something outside ourselves. Remember the picture God gives? There's Moses, his servant, his prophet, his mediator, with his hands up, a hand touching the throne of God up on that hill. Why does he give us this picture? Because in our battles, we are sustained also by a force outside ourselves. As we struggle against the forces of evil, we would never survive if it were not for the fact that a hand touches the throne of God on our behalf. And up there, not on a hill, but in heaven, we have someone praying for us whose prayers are truly effective. We have God's servant, the, the prophet like Moses, the one greater than Moses, the one true mediator. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Friend, I don't know if you ever feel alone. Sometimes you might feel like giving up. Sometimes the battle is long and hard and you don't know if you can win. My brother, my sister, Jesus is praying for you. And as long as Jesus prays for you, the battle will be yours. As long as his hands are lifted in prayer, we will have victory in the end. Moses got tired. There were points where he put his hands down. He had to sit down. He had people to help him keep those hands up. But, but Jesus is not like that. He's the perfect mediator. Hebrews 7.25 reminds us he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged Press on in the battle. Keep trusting the gospel. Keep proclaiming it to others. Keep seeking to live in light of its truth. Even when it's tough, you've got Jesus, not Moses, praying for you. You will win in the end. Don't give up now.
the next meeting in the wilderness, and we're now at point two in the outline, it's, it's a much more pleasant one. That's the one we read about in our reading earlier. Jethro, the priest of Midian, who was the father of Lord Moses, he heard about what God had done, saving his people. He came out to meet Moses in the wilderness where he was camped near Sinai, and he brings, uh, he brings Moses' wife and his two sons with him. Presumably, Moses thought it was better for them to go back to their father-in-law while Moses confronting Pharaoh. Uh, now that Moses is safe, Jethro brings the family, and, uh, and they're reunited. And Moses goes out to meet him and respectfully bows down and kisses him, uh, presumably on the feet. And he tells his father-in-law what God did to rescue his people. In other words, he evangelizes him. He speaks in verse 8. It says in verse 8 that he told all that God, the Lord Yahweh, had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how God had delivered them, and how God had the Lord had delivered them. That is, he tells them the Old Testament story of redemption and salvation. And how does Jethro respond? Well, he rejoices in verse 9 for the good that God has done to Israel. This is what he says in verse 10. Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh, the Lord, is greater than all gods. Do you see that? Jethro hears about the mighty acts of Yahweh in saving his people, and he believes in the supremacy of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so in verse 12, this pagan priest begins to worship the true God, brings a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And then at the end of verse 12, Aaron and the elders of Israel eat bread with Moses and his, his, his father-in-law. That, that, that is, that, that they enjoy a fellowship meal together in God's presence. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Again, how does that apply to us? Well, it's true that we've got a good example here in Moses for evangelizing our, our non-Christian elders, don't we? Uh, like Moses, we should go out of our way to show great respect to our elders. And in the context of a relationship of respect and affection, we can, we can share what God did to save his people, how he paid the price of our sins through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, and how Christ rose again in great victory as Lord, and how he sustains us and he keeps us through the difficulties of life, and, and he will bring us to his eternal kingdom. And as we share, we pray that like Jethro, God will, will bring them to worship him. It's a good example and model. It's not really the main point of the story in the biblical narrative. There's something more important here. For here we see in Jethro an example of a Gentile believer even in Old Testament times. Did you notice that? Jethro is a Gentile. He's not part of Israel, but he has come to worship Yahweh. Why? Because he hears the message about what God has done. And he believes. He hears the message of Yahweh's rescue. And he worships the God of Israel. He becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. He's converted. But he's a Gentile who's converted without becoming an Israelite. For in verse 27, he departs and goes back to his own country. 
My friends, God has always had people who are His but are not part of Old Testament Israel. Now, they're not His because they are good, pious people of their own false religion. Don't make that mistake. They are worshippers of Yahweh. Worshippers of Yahweh who hear and believe and rejoice in the message of the salvation of Yahweh for His people, the Old Testament gospel, if you like. And yet still they're not Israelites. In New Testament times, they were called God-fearers, people like Cornelius, who worshipped Yahweh but wasn't a Jew. And of course, when the gospel came to him, he believed because he's one of God's people. So friends, who are we like in this passage? Well, again, we're more like Jethro than like Moses, aren't we? We're worshippers of Yahweh, even though we are not Jews. We're not people who are descended physically from Israel, but we have heard of the great salvation that the God of Israel has won for His people, the rescue, the exodus, but, but also the even bigger rescue from sin and death and hell through Jesus, that rescue that Exodus was pointing to. We have heard the gospel and we worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we are in fellowship with the Jews who truly worship Yahweh, that is, the Jews who recognize Jesus as Yahweh come in the flesh. And like Jethro, we can share table fellowship. For in Christ, we are genuinely one with them. For God receives people from every nation who believe in Jesus. And wonderfully, that even includes us. Well, the next day, Moses goes back to his job of judging the people. And the people are standing around him from morning to night to hear his verdicts. Jethro notices it, but he's not impressed. He says in verse 17, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And so he gives them some advice. We see that in point three. Moses should still be the mediator, in verse 19, he should still represent people before God. In verse 20, he should still warn them about the laws they should walk in. But he also should delegate the job of applying that law in judging between people to this, this pyramid of able men, in verse 21, who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. And Moses should give them the option of referring matters up to him, but they should decide themselves about things that they can deal with. And this, Jethro suggests, will enable Moses to endure and it will ease the bottleneck in the quest for justice so that people can go home in peace. Now, that's good advice, isn't it? Moses listens to Jethro and does what he suggests. So what are we meant to learn from this? Well, there's the obvious example here of delegation and leadership. A delegation is necessary if we're going to lead an increasing number of people. Uh, even the apostles found that in the early church in Jerusalem. Remember, the church crew and then issues arose. One group complained that their widow's not getting looked after properly, and so the apostles got the church to choose seven people of good character and appointed them for the duty of serving the table. So appropriate delegation to people of good character is a wise idea for leaders, including leaders in the church. We can also learn from how Moses takes this good advice from Jethro. Jethro had just been converted. He wouldn't have had time to learn much about Yahweh and his ways. God hadn't really said very much about delegation. But because God is the creator and we're made in his image, 
there are some things that we can live from observing, learn from observing creation itself rather, through, rather than through God revealing it in a special way. And so there's wisdom from outside Scripture that can be applied among God's people to good effect. Well, of course, it's always tentative. It's always under the authority of Scripture and judged by it. We've always got to be careful about well, the assumptions behind the advice because wrong assumptions can lead to wrong advice and be terribly destructive. But having said all that, there's still good things to learn from outside because God gives what theologians call common grace. He gives people who don't know Him the ability to learn and discover things in the created world, things in physics, in medicine, in IT, in management. And some of those things can be useful in serving His people. But far more important than both these things, the big thing that we see in these verses is the limitation of Moses. Moses is a great prophet of God. And while he wants to deal with everyone, he just simply can't. It's physically not possible. And so things are all banking up. And people are waiting from morning to evening, and he's tiring himself out, trying. But in the Lord Jesus, we have a leader who is far greater than Moses. Yes, we still have leaders among God's people who can shepherd them, but the one who is ultimately responsible for them, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus himself, is actually able to do what Moses can't. Jesus is the one who loves us and knows us individually. And he will bring justice for us individually in the end. Jesus knows each one of us. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He rules the whole universe, and yet there is no cue that we've got to line up from morning to evening to talk to him. You can talk to him anytime. You can cast your anxieties upon him. He will personally look after you, for he cares for you. He cares for you now. And he will bring perfect justice in the end. Not everyone could go to Moses, but each and every one of us can go to Jesus. So what have we seen in our passage today? We've seen Israel fight a battle. We've seen Moses evangelize a relative. And we've seen him learn from good advice. But far more importantly, we've had a glimpse yet again of the wonderful Savior we have in Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest who is always praying for us, and it's his prayers that make it possible for us to persevere and overcome the enemy. Jesus is the Savior who rescued us, and so He's the one we speak of when we share God's salvation with others, and His salvation extends even to us Gentiles, and through Him we are accepted into fellowship with His people. Jesus is the one who is able to deal with each one of us individually now and bring us perfect justice in the end. And so this evening, brothers and sisters, let us once again appreciate the glory of Jesus. Let us once again be stirred in our love for Him, and let us once again be thankful 
that he is our Savior and that we belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our great high priest who is ever interceding for us. Thank you that he calls us, each one of us, individually to come to him and to share our burdens with him. Thank you that in the midst of the battles that we face every day, the big ones and the small ones, Thank you that he cares for us individually. That he prays for us individually. That he sustains us in those battles individually. Thank you that even though we are Gentiles, we have been brought into his kingdom. Thank you that he has rescued us by his death on the cross and, and by his resurrection and that he's made us his own. Please help us to keep trusting him, keep relying on him, and to keep loving him and appreciating him more and more. And may he be glorified in our lives and in his church, now and forever. Amen.